Programs like the Lawrence and Isabel Barnett Grant from the ALS Association are incredibly useful for small companies. It's not always easy to convince investors to put money into an idea when there's not much data behind it. And programs like this help pull the data together to get the program to the next level. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Well, one of the keys to making ALS a livable disease and ultimately finding a cure is the work being done to expand the drug development pipeline. And one of the ways the ALS Association does this is through the Lawrence and Isabel Barnett Drug Development Program, which allows us to strategically fund preclinical projects aimed at developing therapeutics for ALS. And so it is my great privilege to welcome on the show as our guest co-host this week, Dr. Kuldeep Dave, Vice President of Research at the ALS Association. Kuldeep, thanks for being with us this week. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into this program a little bit and kind of share how it works with listeners. So let's just kind of start with basics. Talk to us about the program, where it came from, who it's named after, what is the Lawrence and Isabel Barnett Drug Development Program? Yeah, so this uh, vital program is named in the honor of Lawrence and Isabel Barnett, both widely revered for their roles as a prominent um, entertainment executive and as actress in television and theater, respectively. They contributed their time, talent, and treasure to the ALS Association after a family friend was diagnosed uh, with ALS. And over the years, they have contributed and expanded their partnership-driven work and really allowed this program to be born with their names on it. And their son, Larry Barnett, continues to be a supporter and contributor to uh, an advisor to the ALS Association. And we just are so excited that the Barnett family has been able to help us originate and drive this program forward. So that's the background of the, of the program and, and kind of how it came to be. What types of projects does the Barnett Drug Development Program fund? Yeah, so it's important to understand the pipeline of drug discovery, Jeremy. And I, I've talked about this in the past. The pipeline starts with biology understanding what molecular changes are happening in ALS. Those then become the targets that we go after and we develop drugs for. And so the next stage after that biology, after we identify a target, is called preclinical drug development. And this is the phase that the Barnett program funds. Preclinical drug development means you are developing drugs and then testing them in either animal models or cellular models of ALS. So before you take anything into the clinic, you first test whether that drug would work, whether it gets into the brain and the spinal cord, whether it gets to the target we want to get it to. Um, all of those things are done in uh, preclinical studies. And that's what this program funds. And so, you know, everybody knows the clinical trial environment. Every, you know, those are easy to understand. You know, we test in the clinic, we test for safety, we test for efficacy. But this program is really the behind the scenes of that. It's really the essential step that 
has to happen before clinical trials happen. And that is preclinical testing of drugs. And that's what this program funds. These programs are fairly large grant programs. We are very serious when the Barnett family first established this program and uh, our research committee has committed to make sure that it remains a strong program. We provide half a million dollar grants, 500K for two-year projects. And these are, you know, nothing to laugh at. These are substantial projects from a grant funding mechanism perspective. And they're open to both academic labs and especially to biotech industry and pharmaceutical industry. Because as I said, again, this is so essential before you go into the clinic. One of the things that I've heard you mention in the past when we're talking about drug developments, therapeutic developments, is de-risking. Is this part of that strategy of de-risking? Is that a component of the Barnett program? Yes, <laughs> this is a clear de- definition of de-risking. So, you know, it's a, it's a strange word. We, we use it a lot in nonprofit world. But not everybody may understand what de-risking means. So there is a what we call valley of death going from this biology idea to the clinic. And the valley of death is this preclinical drug development space, because this is where a lot of the ideas that come out of biology actually die because they don't have enough funding to take uh, those ideas forward. And that's what this program does, which is it provides funding, it infuses capital in the right time at the right inflection point. And what happens is now that program gets our grant funding, they can get some preclinical data, which then allows them to go to their management or their advisors and say, look, the preclinical data were positive, and that means, you know, it justifies us spending millions of dollars in clinical trials. So it's a way to de-risk very expensive part of the pipeline, which is the clinical trials. But by having this funding and getting positive data, then allows them to justify why they, they should go into the clinic. Because now we have maybe proof of concept. Can we look back over the years of the program? How are we measuring success? How do we know it's working? Yeah, and this is one of our strategic goals as we make ALS a livable disease, is to really measure impact of what happens after we have funded a project. You know, it's easy to always congratulate ourselves on process, right? It's easy to say we funded X number of projects. We funded Y number of projects in this cycle. That's great that we funded them. Where did they end up? Where are they now? And I I think that's the impact question that we're trying to answer. Can I, let me just add one thing before we talk about impact. What have we funded through this program in the last five, six years that the Barnett program has been in existence? We have funded 32 programs in total. And that's if you if you add up the number of dollars we have committed to these 32 programs, it comes out to around $10.6 million. So wow. that's that's our commitment that we have made in this very significant de-risking program. Now, coming to the impact of the program, and one way to look at impact is how many of these preclinical programs ended up in the clinic. 
And I can tell you, even though this program is only five years old and we have only funded 32 programs so far, already four out of the 32 are in the clinic. That means we were able to de-risk them, get data, proof of concept data, as you said, Jeremy, to justify that them being moved into the clinic. And you know, sometimes it's very difficult, Jeremy, to draw a line between our funding and sure. you know, what may happen in the clinic because it's it's hard, right? But I think what we can say at least is that our funding contributed to that progress, right? It's 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 a relay race. And this program, the Barnett program, is really taking the baton from the biology piece and then handing it off to the clinical piece. And so it's that middle person. And and so those four projects that are currently in the clinic are there because they got data from the preclinical Barnett program that allowed them to move into the clinic. Beyond that, beyond what's in the clinic, another way to look at de-risking is how much partnerships did they end up with or how much follow-on funding did they get? Remember, our funding is not the only thing that's out there, right? There's funding from other nonprofits. There are funding from NIH, from Department of Defense's ALS research program. So there's government funders. We know there is venture capital investments out there. And we know that there are large pharma out there that are you know, waiting for these programs to license them in. And so those are the other ways we can look at impact. How many of these programs have either gone on to get partnerships or got on to get follow-on funding. And I'm happy to report to you out of 32, 21 projects have gone on to get follow-on funding or have partnerships with large pharma or with VCs. And that's really, really amazing. You know, I'm just so proud that we're seeing a real-time impact of this program, which is, again, for everybody, just five years old. That's right. Yeah. Five years old and still going. Can you give us a sense of where we are in the cycle right now? And I know there was an RFA out a, a while back. Um, you know, Where are we finding the next concepts to invest in? Yeah. So uh, this makes me very happy to report. So we did, uh, so Barnett program is our annual program. So we launch it each year. So there are you know, five to six to seven projects each year that get funded. Think think about that. You know, if you average, if there are six projects that get funded, 500K for each project, that's a $3 million commitment each year that we're putting into this program. Again, shows how committed we are. We did this year, as we have for the last five, launched the Barnett program and happy to report, received the most number of applications we have ever seen come into this program This gets me excited for a couple of reasons. One, that means people have confidence in our program. They're seeing the impact of what's moving into the clinic or the partnerships that are resulting or the follow-on funding that's coming in. And so, you know, people have confidence that they're coming into this program. And the other reason why it gives me hope is that means there are 40 ideas out there, (laughs) you know, because I think that's the number of applications we received Uh, there are 40 ideas out there around ALS preclinical drug development. That is just great. Yeah, I am happy to report that we completed the review and six projects were selected for this round to be funded through the Barnett mechanism. 
And while uh, I, I wish I could talk about them right now, about what those six projects are and who, who's getting funded and what those targets are, unfortunately, they're undergoing contracting right now. So, um, But we will be making an announcement, hopefully by November, December timeframe, on which of the six projects got funded uh, out of this program. Well, to dig a little deeper into the program, I had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Dan Albaum, Chief Science Officer at Curalis, a prior recipient of funding from the Barnett Drug Development Program. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. Thanks, Jeremy. It's nice to meet you, and uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, looking forward to talking a little bit about the Lawrence and Isabel Barnett Drug Development Program. But before we get into that, can you just introduce yourself to listeners and tell them about your background and how you found your way into ALS drug development? Sure. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Curalis, and we're an ALS-focused startup in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm actually a chemist by training, and I got to ALS by a fairly circuitous path, actually. When I was in graduate school, my, one of my roommates from college was diagnosed with cancer, he was on chemotherapy, and when I visited him at the hospital, it was clear that it was a brutal therapy. I, I was convinced there had to be a better way. And that's what drove me to try to make better drugs from the start. After my formal education, I started working in biotech, and at one point did work on oncology. The team put a compound through phase three, but ultimately it wasn't taken forward. My thinking on ALS actually started with cystic fibrosis, a disease that I worked on for about four years ago in around 2010. There are no animal models of cystic fibrosis, and research is done largely in primary cells from the lungs of transplant patients. I can't say enough about how helpful it is to research when patients participate in clinical trials and uh, donate samples of uh, body fluids and, and uh, tissue. That said, Vertex has put a number of effective therapies onto the market for cystic fibrosis. One of the chemistry leads for that project, a guy named Peter Grutenhaus, once told me that if there had been an animal model, it likely would have set the project back years. Sadly, several years ago, Peter was diagnosed with ALS and has since passed away. In 2017, I was introduced to Casper Root, the CEO of Curalis. He said that the time to make a real difference in ALS is now. And the reason is the advances in cellular models and that they were more likely to recapitulate human disease than any of the animal models had so far. It wasn't a hard sell given my background in cystic fibrosis. I was already convinced that cellular models were the way to do drug discovery. With that, I joined Curalis in 2018 and I've been working on this problem ever since. Yeah, thanks for that. It's amazing to think how the development of cellular technology has kind of moved up the starting point, I guess, in the, in the development process and, and, and made it so that we can start a little bit further down, it sounds like, than, than maybe we had prior. Can you talk to us a little bit about the Curalis program? I know it was launched in, in 2016, but what are the pathways that the therapeutic development process or program takes over at Curalis? We actually have three very active programs, and, and the first of these three is in hyperexcitability. ALS patients often have overexcitation of their motor neurons. This can be seen as fasciculations that patients experience as uh, some of these muscle spasms. Turns out in work from our founders, Professor Kevin Agan and Clifford Wolf, that this can also be seen in motor neurons grown from patient-derived induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs. Working in Professor Wolf's lab, Dr. Brian Wanger discovered that the hyperexcitability can be traced to a potassium channel called KV7.2. And it, activating this channel actually calms the hyperexcitability in these cells. 
There was some additional work that was known at the time from Dr. Kuwabara's lab at Shiba University. And Dr. Kuwabara had shown that patients with hyperexcitability, as measured by one of two easily measured tests, either short interval cortical inhibition or strength duration time constant, had decreased survival. That is, patients with hyperexcitability showed shorter survival. With this information and the information about KV7 that Dr. Wanger had developed on his own, he ran a small clinical trial of a KV7 opener that can calm hyperexcitability and demonstrated that not only does this work in stem cells in a dish, but it also works clinically. Unfortunately, this compound has a lot of side effects and it hasn't been advanced. We have a KV7 modulator that we expect to put into clinical trials in 2022. That's exciting news. Thanks. Now things get really interesting. One of the hallmarks of ALS relates to a protein called TDP43. TDP43 usually exists in the nucleus of the cell, helping with a process called RNA splicing. Very briefly, DNA contains the instructions for the cell. It's transcribed into RNA, but the RNA contains more than just what's needed. So the unneeded parts are spliced out. Once the RNA has been spliced, it moves into the cytoplasm and the encoded protein is synthesized. In ALS, TDP43 leaves the nucleus and goes into the cytoplasm. There, it often forms structures called stress granules, and those stress granules can lead to aggregates. These aggregates have always been seen as toxic in a process that's known as a gain-of-function toxicity, where something that isn't toxic becomes toxic. And there's likely some uh, validity to that hypothesis. It's also been known for several years that a protein called Staphmin 2 is lost from the neurons of ALS patients. This was shown in a number of independent studies using postmortem tissue. What was unknown was how this was happening. In 2019, there were two publications, one from Professor Egan's lab and one from Professor Don Cleveland's lab that showed that when TDB43 leaves the nucleus, Staphmin 2 RNA is not properly spliced. This misplacing leads to a loss of Staphmin 2 protein. This is known as a loss of function toxicity, where something is missing and that becomes toxic. Staphmin 2 is not the only misplaced protein, but we'll have more on that later. Staphmin 2 has also been known for some time to be important in axonal survival. The axon is the long fiber of the nerve. In fact, there are motor neurons in people that can reach about a meter in length, basically from the base of your spine all the way to your toes. And we have a way to restore Staphmin 2 in the face of TDP43 loss. I expect to start clinical trials in the second half of next year. Our third major program is around a process called autophagy. Autophagy is essentially a recycling function that helps the cell remove unwanted or damaged components and reuse the building blocks from them. I mentioned before that when TDP43 leaves the nucleus, it can aggregate in the cytoplasm. Professor Sammy Barmada has shown that activating autophagy can help clear TDP43 from the cytoplasm. And we're looking at ways to activate autophagy to address the gain-of-function toxicity associated with TDB43. There are some additional recent findings that are also uh, highly intriguing. First, Professor Barmada also showed that when a neuron becomes hyperexcitable, TDB43 leaves the nucleus. In addition, it was recently shown that KV7.2 is one of the proteins that is misplaced when TDB43 is lost from the nucleus. You can now imagine a feed-forward in which a neuron becomes hyperexcitable, leading to TDB43 mislocalization of the cytoplasm, which leads to KV7.2 misplicing, reinforcing the hyperexcitability, and on and on this cycle goes. This hypothesis has yet been tested, 
but it is intriguing. And you can imagine that if you could get off this signal, you could slow disease progression. Interesting to hear uh, all the working pieces and how they all kind of fit together in a way. Now, Dan, I mentioned at the top, Curalis has been a recipient of funding from the ALS Association's uh, Lawrence and Isabel Barnett Drug Development Program. Can you talk a little bit about the role programs like that plays in moving research forward from potential into you know, clinical trials and, and eventually into the marketplace? Programs like the Lawrence and Isabel Barnett Grant from the ALS Association are incredibly useful for small companies. While I've outlined our current major focus, we do have additional ideas. Funding from patient organizations helps to advance both current programs, as in the Barnett Award, and to get early data from other ideas to help advance the programs. We actually were also the recipient of earlier support from uh, the ALS Association that advanced one of our earlier programs. It's not always easy to convince investors to put money into an idea when there's not much data behind it. And programs like this help pull the data together to get the program to the next level. Thanks for that. And Dan, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about your transition into ALS research and ALS drug development, that it's a good time to be in that field. It's a hopeful time. You know, you've been in this industry for some time. When you look at the landscape of, of drug development, particularly in ALS, what gives you hope that, you know, we're, we're close? What gives me the most hope, Jeremy, is the level of interest in ALS. That translates to a lot of smart people thinking about the problem. There are a number of things in clinical development that are showing promise, but beyond that, the level of interest and passion that the research teams here at Curalis and at other places bring to finding a solution and the improved understanding of the basic biology is going to mean that beneficial therapies make it to patients soon. The goal is to reach a point where patients die with the disease rather than from the disease. Dan, those are all the questions that I had prepared. But before I let you go, uh, any other closing thoughts you want to share with listeners? I just want to echo your statement that it's an exciting time in ALS. We're working as hard as we can and as fast as we can to bring therapies to the clinic. Early in my career, I worked at Pfizer. There was a slogan that read, patients are waiting. It's really the only corporate slogan that really spoke to me because patients are waiting. They're waiting for us to deliver medicines to improve their lives. It's a tremendous responsibility for those of us who can do it. Such a hopeful note to close things on. Dan, thanks so much for your time this week. Thank you very much for having me, Jeremy. I want to once again thank my guests for today, Dr. Kuldeep Dave, Vice President of Research at the ALS Association, and Dr. Dan Elbaum, Chief Science Officer at Curalis. We will share more information about the Lawrence and Isabel Barnett Drug Development Program in the show notes, but that is going to do it for this week's episode. You can subscribe to Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts, and while you're there, please find time to rate and review the show. It is a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, production management by Gabriella Montkeen, supervised by David Hoffman. Thanks for listening. We'll connect with you again soon.